Hi everyone, this is Taze. Welcome back again. Welcome to the next episode. We're here with Peter Gaston. Where are Hello. we, Peter? Uh, we are at Code Motion, Code Emotion. Is it Code Motion or Code Emotion? It's Code Motion, the but e I think. It's shared between the two. Yeah, right? because I think the Italians like to pronounce vowels. Okay, so it's Code Emotion um, in Rome. Uh, Code Emotion is a European wide and I think expanding out to Israel and the Middle East sometimes. Yeah, Middle East as well. well. They have stuff in Dubai, they have stuff in Israel, all over the place. So yep. it's, it's just a matter of time before they conquer the world. And it's like a multi track developer conference, but for games, for web, for apps, for, for everything. The Great. works. Now, why are we here, Peter? Okay, well, I can't speak for you, Tice, but for myself, I'm here uh, to talk about artificial intelligence, but that might sound very highfalutin. It's not highfalutin at all. I'm talking about the commoditization and the easy access to consumer-facing artificial intelligence services. And I've been at the talk and I've, been, I've seen it twice. I saw it at Future of Web Apps in London yep. last year. And I thought it was really good and worthwhile checking again. And then you informed me that you've uh, revamped I've, it a bit. I've changed the order around quite a lot from the original talk. Um, I, I first gave the talk back in I think June of last year, um, but there's just so much happening in this space and the more I read, the more I find out, the more that my talk just constantly evolves. So I think it's probably about 50% the same that you saw maybe the last time and even that the order has changed quite a lot. Now what I find interesting is given your profile, you're not professionally or, or not by nature involved in, in, in AI, right? Because no. as far as I remember, the first time I met with you was in Prague. Uh, I believe so, yep. Future of Web Apps, was that in 2011, 2012? 12, maybe, yeah. 2012. And I think you're primarily known on the internet for your involvement with CSS. Yeah, I mean, for years. Um, so I, 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 I've been working professionally in the web for 16 years now. My first paying job was in uh, 2000. And I was a front-end developer for a long, long, long time. Um, specialized in CSS um, and I even wrote a couple of books well, I wrote the book of CSS 3 was my first book and I wrote for Smashing Magazine and I wrote for a list apart and I gave lots of conference talks and they were all about CSS um, over the years my scope broadened slightly I started including more modern um, JavaScript and especially I had a great interest in as the mobile web kind of exploded in in device APIs and just getting more out of what the browser is capable of, just removing it from this sandbox. Um, so a more holistic approach to the web than solely on formatting the output, right? With CSS. Precisely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean that was my specialization. But after a while, I think CSS3 came in and was well, it's still it's still coming in, it's still being implemented. But we got to a stage where um, you know we could do the stuff we wanted to do essentially. Uh, and so at that point, it was kind of do I just carry on? reading and learning about these very esoteric um, CSS things that might or might not happen. Um, that was one of the problems I had with my books is I'd write something, I'd write about something that had been implemented in two browsers and then think, great, that's going to be implemented. And then some, you know, six months later, they'd tear up the whole implementation and start all over again. And it was just becoming kind of harder and harder. And I didn't want to keep pushing that thing of hey, try this thing in your browser that might or might not work. There's a recurring theme in what you're saying. Uh, I've noticed that you're trying to do things up until a given point where technology limits you and technology is advancing rapidly now. So that broadens your horizon. And 
yeah, I, I bronze is a range of things you could do. I think so, in a way. But I, I've always been interested in things sort of at the bleeding edge. Well, not always, but in the last seven or eight years, especially with CSS3, I first heard about that maybe 10 years ago or something, and there was almost no implementation in browsers at all back then. Um, but I kind of came to realize that just working on that bleeding edge all the time wasn't the most important thing. It was interesting, but it wasn't necessarily important. Um, and so I broadened my scope to talk about what the browser could do, was capable of doing, became very interested in device APIs, about being able to access the camera and all that. But then again, at some point, that had to stop because um, basically the, the most popular browser that we work with on the mobile space, which is Safari, just doesn't seem to show any interest in implementing that stuff at all. So again, there was kind of a, I could talk about it for Android, but if people aren't gonna go away and actually use this stuff or be able to use this stuff, then there was kind of not so much point to that as well. Now, an essential thing we haven't touched on yet is, so you've introduced yourself and what you do, but where do you work and how does that impact your day-to-day? -day? Right, so that was another thing that changed was that I went to work for um, this company where I am now, which is Rehab Studio. We're a, a creative technology company um, based in London, Belfast, and we now have small offices in San Francisco, New York. But we make digital stuff, not just web stuff, but digital stuff. We make physical things with the digital component to them. We make apps, we make games, we make everything digital. And so my scope necessarily had to broaden. When I went there, I was the web guy. You know, I love the web. Always have. I think it's a fantastic, um, you know, it, it, it gave me a career for which I'll be eternally grateful. But... Um, um, things the, web, the web being, because we need to clarify that. So you're an expert at CSS, but the web is, what, what does the web mean for you in, ter in terms of technology stack? So it's probably HTML, it's JavaScript, it's CSS, but is there more to it uh, for so you personally? For me personally, HTML, JavaScript, CSS, SVG, um, very much the front end I'm focusing on like, and the API kind of side of stuff. That was the thing I would wanted yeah. to know if you're involved in backend technology. I, I, I know them, but I wouldn't want to... I, I, I know just enough Python and just enough PHP to be dangerous, but I wouldn't want to put anything into yeah, production. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but my scope had to necessarily broaden. I was the web guy there, and when things came in, they would ask, uh, so, my, so back up a step. When I went there, I didn't go there as a developer. I went there as the title of creative technologist, which is what my title is now. So I, I, I need to have this broader knowledge and a broader range of, of things to know about. But when, whenever a job came in from a client, my first thought would always be, how can we build this on the web? Because, I, as I said, I love the web. I think it's a fantastic, flexible platform. Um, it doesn't require, it, it's, it's open, which for me is a big deal. It means that nobody has to go to an app store and download things, etc. So I always thought of it about, from the perspective, how do we do this on the web? Which I still do as my first point, port of call. Um, but I've kind of had to broaden my scope and think, well, maybe the web is not always the best place to do this stuff. And especially with the things that I wanted to do, like use um, the camera, a device camera, just having live input through the browser, and you can't do it on Safari, so that's a massive part of our market gone. So I've had to start thinking native, I've had to start thinking of workarounds, even building stuff in Flash, if we need Seriously? to. Seriously, Flash, yeah. whoa. I know that doesn't work on the, on the mobile browser no. either. Um, but sometimes, when you want to use camera input, Flash has a broader reach, or did maybe two years ago, than at the time WebRTC did. Um, and so I just became more and more interested in all the different things that we could and couldn't do. 
Um, and now I think of, so I'm, now I'm kind of web first, but very quickly followed by, well, if we can't do it on the web, what's the, be what's the best way to do it? That led you eventually to artificial intelligence then, I guess. The AI one was an interesting one. A client came to us with a request about 18 months ago and they wanted to build something. Um, they wanted to have kind of a smart chatbot. So a system where you could ask questions about, I'm not sure if I could, I won't name them. They, wanted, they had a range of products which were on constant display and they wanted people to be able to ask questions about these products even when there were no assistants around. Um, and so they came to us and asked us if we could build a chatbot and we looked into it and at the time, as I was saying, 18 months to two years ago, there was technology out there to do it, but it was hard and it required a lot of training and we had to go back to them and say to them, we can build this, but we've got to build an entire custom stack and it's going to cost you this much. You'll only be able to do it through SMS um, and we, you know, it, it was possible, but it was expensive. And in the end, that job didn't happen. But I always had this idea, I was always thinking in the back of my mind, what, you know, why doesn't this thing exist? Surely we're capable of doing it. And then uh, probably at, I think six months before the Facebook developer conference last year, Facebook bought this company called Wit, which is a natural language parsing startup. And I hadn't heard of them before until Facebook bought them. So I looked at it and I was amazed because it was basically exactly what we wanted to do. It could understand complete sentences and then uh, return back to your very small JSON file with the, the sense of what was being asked. Not a literal translation, but this, uh, this, uh, this sentence is about this thing. These are the things that the person is That's what your uh, chatbot needed to do. It needs to understand, apart from language, apart from dialect, apart from slang, just... Yeah, we, what is this person asking me to do? You know, chatbots up to now have been very restrictive about you must ask things in a certain way, or if it, you know, you had to supply all of the possible different ways that it, that someone could say something, the different spellings, especially on text, which you know is quite vernacular the way people ask stuff, and these systems just weren't capable of doing it. Whereas something like Wit just seemed incredibly capable of handling that rich natural language. Um, so when I heard about Wit, I was really, really interested. I fired it up, gave it a go, it seemed great. And then I wondered if there were any other services out there like that. And then just the more I looked at it, the more I found. I just realized there was this explosion happening and I wasn't really sure why. Um, and then it all came down to essentially these breakthroughs in machine learning which have happened um, not just at and, Google. And all the big boys seem to be doing it because that was something I caught from your presentation is that a lot of big players are investing in that, having their own platform to do it. Yeah, and they've been doing it for, for a number of years. Facebook have them, um, Google have them. Uh, in China we have Baidu and we have... Um, um, uh, there's another company whose name escapes me now. Um, but all the major players have been looking at IBM. doing stuff. IBM, yeah, for example. I, well, I didn't know about them at the time, but I learned about them later. But basically, everybody's been doing this stuff for years. And the reason they've been doing it is because it required massive amounts of data processing. It just wasn't, uh, it wasn't simple for someone like you and I to do. We would have to have this huge infrastructure available to us. But, but up until recently, that all sounded pretty academic, right? Machine yeah. learning and all we, these kinds of things. So in your presentation, it it came clear to me and to the audience that this is reaching us at a faster pace than we were expecting for approaches and, uh, and, and, and ways we can't imagine, like uh, yeah, and it's really simple things that we can use in life. Yeah, and the, um, 
the algorithms that make this possible have had big improvements in the last couple of years, and that's been a big thing. But really just equally as important is the rise of cloud computing. Cloud computing distributing the power required to make this possible um, has just, like, overnight almost just exploded what's been possible what, what we as consumers are able to do with um, with with these uh, artificial intelligence systems that require so much processing power we don't need to be a Google anymore and to have this huge stack because we can just pay Amazon or we can pay Google or we can pay Microsoft to do the processing work for us and so as a result of this this ready availability of cloud computing and the improvements in the algorithms, there's just been a, a huge wave of, um, as well as the bigger companies making public their, like making consumer-facing APIs, also smaller startups leveraging the same sudden available power and selling them those on as well. So we're seeing a massive wave of, of indies offering up things which until three years ago were totally out of their reach. And can you give uh, our audience a couple of examples of things that might reach them in the near future or already readily available, things that the average consumer can benefit from? Yeah, I think there's, there's two things which are probably preeminent. One, as I said, is the natural language understanding of being able to talk in complete standard sentences as you and I are doing now and having a machine make sense of them. That would not have been possible three or four years ago, um, except in the very highest echelons or maybe in like um, universities where they have access to these things. But consumer facing, absolutely not. And that's a massive one because it does make possible things like um, conversational interfaces. So services that are sold exclusively through Facebook Messenger, for example. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing now from uh, GUI to CUI these days? Yeah, sorry. For, uh, the example that I give, which I, I can't remember where I read it, it's not original of mine, but basically it's nobody wants to talk to their bank's website. What people want to talk, do is talk to their bank account. I don't want, if I want to find out what my account, uh, what my bank balance is, I don't want to have to go to a website and log in and, you know, go through the interface until I find the thing I need. What I want to do is just say, what's my bank balance and have someone tell me. Um, and that's made possible. That's made very, very super easy and possible. So it's no coincidence that in the last three years, we've also seen Siri and Google Voice Search and uh, Cortana and Amazon's Alexa, with, uh, um, Amazon's Echo, which is now at home as well. There's no coincidence these things have all appeared together. It's because now they're possible. So that natural language understanding is one very big one. And the second one, which I think there's so many services doing, is... Um, is vision APIs, understanding what's in a photograph. Yeah, a, a really cool thing that Peter did in his presentation or that he showcased was that there was a school that created an algorithm that could look at paintings from famous artists, interpret their style, and then given uh, a picture, could redraw that painting based on that picture and also based on the style of the artist. So you could have yeah. a Van Gogh that was never painted by Van Gogh. Precisely, and it's not just, it's not just applying like a, you know, a Photoshop filter to the image. It understands, given the source photograph, what is a sky in this photograph and how the painter would have painted a sky and the difference in the way they would have painted that to um, a, a body of water or a park. So it understands the component elements of the photograph and paints them all in sympathetic styles, which is phenomenal. Um, and I, I think probably a lot of people remember maybe four years ago, there was news that Google had taught their systems how to understand a photograph of a cat, which at the time was kind of quite funny and nobody, nobody really realized that 
This thing had learned what a cat looks like by itself. There was never at any point a human sitting down and instructing this machine, this is a photograph of a cat. It just gave enough photographs or videos, I think it did, fed them into the system and it learned by itself to identify the common features of a cat in all of these things. Um, and that same technology, which was done um, four years ago, can now understand what is happening in a photograph. And by what is happening, I mean literally very strictly. There's a video I, can, I didn't show in my presentation, but I can share with you, which is um, Facebook, a guy at Facebook called Jan LeCun, who's leading their AI charge. And they have this video where um, he shows pictures, he shows new photographs to a system and then asks questions about it. So in the first one, he says, for example, who is in the picture? And the machine responds, a baby. And it's right, there is a baby in the picture. Whoa, that's pretty but, impressive. But then he says, where is the baby? And it says, in the bathroom. And it's right. And then he says, what is the baby doing? And it says, brushing its teeth. And it's correct every time. So it's understanding what's in this picture, just purely based on all the, the millions of pictures that we upload to Facebook every day. And one of the examples you gave actually inspired me to try it yourself. You fed, a, fed the, one of those systems a picture of yourself. Yeah, I gave it a picture of me it, uh, just stood in a, in a forest. And all of these systems correctly identified forest. Some of them correctly identified person in forest. Um, but Google's system, which most people agree is, um, has the, the massive body of data which makes it way more powerful, actually correctly identified the type of forest it was. It identified that it's a, uh, a mixed leaf, a mixed broadleaf temperate forest as opposed to a pine forest or as opposed to you know anything else it could have been. Um, so they're, they're really, uh, their level of understanding at the moment is, is phenomenal. So the use case I'll try doing it, I have a lot of pictures of, of my son. Like if you have a kid, you take massive amount of pictures of it. And I have pictures of other things that are all synced to my Dropbox account. What I would like to do is just extract all these pictures and just have a subset of pictures by machine learning that says, these are pictures that has your son in them. That would be a really cool thing. Yeah, that kind of um, recognition of people in pictures is, is kind of trivial to do now. Which and it's, it's what Facebook does these days, right? Facebook's been doing it for a couple of years. Um, Google Photos does it, but not in Europe because of European privacy laws. If you use Google Photos in the USA, it will identify all of your friends in the photos. Um, and I th one of the examples I used was a system which Facebook have never used, they say, but have described a, a paper for, a, an academic paper, where they can also correctly identify who's in pictures even when their faces can't be seen, just based on the style of clothes they wear and the style of hair they have. And it does that with an 83% accuracy rate, which is you know, incredible. But Google Photos is probably the biggest, um, the, the, the clearest example of why this is important. Because if you upload all your photos to Google Photos, you can then search it, and it will correctly find the thing you're, you're looking for. Not only based on the file name, right? Or, or some of the Not based on the file name, information. you've never given it a tag, nothing like this. It just knows what's in that picture based on the millions of other pictures that it's had to refer to itself against. And not just things like boat or bird or simple things, but abstract concepts like art. If you search it for art, it will bring back graffiti, street art, uh, gallery art. It will distinguish between a painting of a bird and a photograph of a bird. It's incredibly smart. And I think as systems get smart like this, um, if you're a photo provider or something, if you're offering photo storage to people as a service and yours doesn't do this, I think you're going to start seeming very, very old fashioned very soon.
So by the next couple of years, in a couple of years' time, we will get used to those features. And if you as a company don't have uh, any form of AI into your product, you might fall behind? Yeah, I think so, depending on the product, but I think you know, this AI does bootstrap the things that we have right now. It just makes them easier. Um, if you're a Flickr user, a long-time Flickr user, you'll probably remember having to go in and manually tag all your photographs. Um, you don't need to do that anymore. As a Flickr user, you upload, it tags them all for you instantly. It might get a few wrong, but the more you, the more you correct it, the, the smarter it gets at doing that. So if I were making a Flickr rival today and I didn't offer that service, I think that would be a distinct disadvantage. Okay, so as you can see, folks, AI is coming to your home anytime soon. It has already, and I would strongly advise you to look at the different things out there. I will uh, refer to them in the show notes. That's all the time we have today. Thank you, Peter, for checking out. Thank, Thank you, you for this lovely presentation. This for yeah, <laughs> I know, and we'll, uh, we'll uh, refer to some links so that the people could check out what you're doing and uh, where you'll be speaking. The talk is called OK Computer, and it was great. So, people, thanks a lot for watching us. Check it out, subscribe to the channel, and see you next time. Bye bye.